All right. Welcome, everyone. Appreciate everyone coming out today. Uh, essentially, the first day to reInvent. Uh, my name is Eric Dame. I am a solutions architect for Amazon Web Services. Today, I have Ram with me from Beeswax. Uh, he'll introduce himself in a little bit, and we'll get a little bit of story around Beeswax and how they're using AWS platform. So one of the cool things about working at AWS is I get to listen to customer stories from folks like Ram and Beeswax, as well as understand sort of the cool, interesting things they're doing. Um, so in this talk, uh, we're going to sort of talk about real-time bidding, or RTB, uh, on AWS. And since it's a 300-level talk, we'll assume that most folks know uh, what real-time bidding is uh, and have a decent understanding of the AWS platform. We're going to cover a pretty wide variety of different areas uh, throughout the, uh, the talk here. But mainly, we're going to focus on uh, things like performance, some of the considerations there, scale, you know, what's our global footprint look like, uh, as well as cost optimizations. How can you really keep an eye on your costs and, and make sure they're not scaling out of control? Uh, as well as data, you know, retaining your data, doing some analytics on your data. Where do you store that data for long periods of time? So as a quick heads up, we're going to be passing the, uh, the baton back and forth here. We're going to try not to drop it. Um, but uh, we're doing our best. And so Ram and I are going to be talking sort of more dynamically just to give everyone a, head, a heads up there. So uh, this is essentially what RTB sort of data flow might look like from a holistic perspective. Uh, we're really going to focus on that area there and the, uh, the red circle. Uh, and essentially, just as a quick recap, RTB, or real-time bidding, is really the process of the user goes to a website, they click on uh, the page, and then behind the scenes, there's a series of transactions uh, and essentially bids from different providers happen. And effectively, the lowest, or the, excuse me, the highest cost bidder uh, or price bidder actually gets to place that ad uh, all behind the scenes, uh, all happens under 100 milliseconds, unbeknownst to the user. Um, and so essentially, what we see is customers following a process of ingesting their data into AWS. Uh, they need to store or make decisions on that data pretty quickly. Uh, so they use something like a NoSQL data store for that, generally. Uh, as well as, you know, how do they run analytics or campaign management? How do they store that data and even run ML or machine learning type models on the data uh, later on? So before we dig in or, or dive in here, um, just to kind of go over why, why RTB on AWS, right? So why, why would you build your real-time bidding service or platform on AWS? And really, there's essentially five main reasons that we've sort of come up with after talking with a bunch of customers. Um, the first is really their pace of innovation. So if you think about today, we have 90 plus services on AWS. Um, you know, the one I was, was talking around earlier, the one, the one bet I would probably make uh, at, at uh, Vegas is that by the end of the week, we're going to have several, several, several more uh, services. So 90 plus and counting. And things like network load balancer, which is relatively new, we're going to dive into a little bit more, and how we or keep releasing new compute instances and memory optimized instances so you can get really performant, um, really performant um, capacity from your AWS infrastructure. The other thing is our, our spot market, right? So pretty unique to AWS, as there's something called the EC2 spot market. We'll dig into that a little bit deeper later on. But you can bid on or you can request uh, really deep discounted instances using the spot market. Uh, another reason is just our global footprint. And so if you look at regions around the world, today we have 16 uh, global regions that are around the world. And this allows you to deploy your infrastructure the same way across whether you're in uh, India or the US or wherever it may be. Uh, and then we have several more that we pre-announced coming online in the next couple of years. 
The other reason is just our, our broad choice, right? So we want to give customers choice. So whether you're using a variety of our managed services like Kinesis or load balancers or even uh, DynamoDB, uh, or you can run your own technology or a series of technologies on EC2, right? So you can spin up a virtual machine and you can deploy your application of choice on EC2. And then last but not least is our, our sort of growing uh, ecosystem in AWS. So, you know, publishers like Hearst and Yelp, uh, media companies like Turner and uh, Discovery Channel all have presence in AWS. This gives the opportunity for customers to interact with one another and low latency as well as for cost reasons within the AWS ecosystem. So with that, I'll let uh, Ram introduce himself and uh, tell a little bit about his story. First one. Thanks, Eric. Um, always excited to be here at reInvent, uh, amazed at the scale of this event and how much it grows year on year. So good afternoon, everyone. I'm Ram, uh, co-founder and CTO of PeaceVax. This is a company that I started about three years ago with two of my former colleagues from Google. Uh, we're based out of uh, New York. We're a global organization. We have an office in London to oversee our European business. We are venture-funded. We raised Series A last year, and we have a growing number of customers who are really happy with our product. Uh, and our business, the team, and the system continues to grow pretty rapidly. So what we do at Beeswax is that we design, build, and operate the Beeswax programmatic cloud. Uh, the programmatic cloud is a fully managed uh, RTB platform built on top of AWS. It provides our customers who are marketers or ad networks with a flexible bidding platform uh, that gives them complete control and full transparency. So in this talk, I'm going to uh, address some of the features of the programmatic cloud. And in particular, I'm going to talk about uh, three features of it. First, the programmatic cloud is a fully functional DSP out of the box on day one. And it's on this aspect this talk's really going to be focused on. Second, the programmatic cloud provides our customers with extensible APIs that they could build on top of. And finally, uh, we at Beeswax have partnered with several innovative companies that offer products on top of the programmatic cloud. And so this really lets our customers leverage these deep integrations uh, and really design a custom bidding solution. So the following is the system architecture of the programmatic cloud. Uh, broadly, the system can be broken down into four main areas. Uh, the campaign management is a RESTful API that lets our customers control their campaign, their budgets, targeting, creatives, etc. The serving component uh, refers to the high-performance, uh, high-scale distributed system that is responsible for receiving and processing millions of uh, requests per second. The user data component is another large-scale distributed system that is responsible for collecting and storing user profile information. And finally, the reporting and the analytics component uh, forms the, the big data component of the stack. Uh, this comprises of systems that process uh, millions of streaming events per second and then convert them into actionable insights for our customers. As is pretty evident from this uh, diagram, we lean pretty heavily on Amazon-managed uh, services. In fact, our operating principle is that we would delegate to an AWS-managed service wherever possible uh, so that uh, they can do the heavy lifting and we can uh, focus on building the product for our customers. Uh, with that, I'll hand it back to Eric to talk about performance. 
Excuse me. So uh, in this section, we'll talk about performance, sort of I mentioned in the beginning, um, ingesting that data, right, making uh, determinations on that data as quickly as possible. So we'll think about or, or talk about load balancing, uh, network optimizations, and, and uh, low latency data, um, data stores like NoSQL database or data stores. So when you get traffic coming in at millions of requests per second, it can kind of look like this, right? You have a bunch of different uh, requests coming in. And so, you know, how do you ingest that traffic as quickly as possible? How do you make sure that you're getting that, that traffic into your system so you can make decisions on that data? So the good thing is uh, we have a, a variety of different um, uh, managed services like elastic load balancers for folks to use to ingest that traffic. So whether you're using something like the classic ELB, if you want to manage HTTP or HTTPS or even TCP traffic with the classic load balancer, you can do so. Uh, or you can choose the application load balancer. So if you have uh, web sockets you need to support or you have uh, dynamic port assignments you need to do for containers in your backend, you can do so using the application load balancer or even SSL termination uh, with the application load balancer as well. But the newest sort of offering to the family we're really excited about is the network load balancer. So this is perfect for really uh, low latency, high throughput, uh, millions upon millions of requests per second. Uh, and this allows customers to spin up a, a NLB and not have to think about uh, scaling or even uh, sort of optimizing for the, uh, the load coming through their systems. So to, to dig a little bit deeper, uh, NLB really operates at the later four le uh, level, uh, sort of the connection level. Uh, and what this allows you to do is to pass through traffic very effectively and quickly, uh, as well as you can do end-to-end -end SSL, termina end -end SSL uh, termination. So actually pushing your SSL traffic through the load balancer uh, and terminating it at your EC2 instance. A lot of folks or customers are requesting to have that sort of end-to-end -end, uh, SSL or TLS uh, connection. You can do so using the, the NLB. Back to you. So let's first talk about the need for uh, load balancing in an RTB application. So any typical um, RTB deployment needs to scale up to a million queries per second or so uh, to be able to find the audiences uh, that you need to target. Um, so therefore, uh, it, you definitely need a pool of machines that are going to handle your incoming request volume. And having a really good load balancer is a pretty indispensable uh, component of your overall stack, because that's going to ensure that the load is uniformly uh, distributed to your pool of machines. In the case of uh, RTB, the bid requests themselves are uh, transmitted as an HTTP request, uh, and the bid request is actually the payload of, a, of an HTTP post request. So what this means is that load balancing solutions both at L4, which is the network layer, or the L7, the application layer, are both feasible uh, to be used in an RTB application. So all the uh, Amazon managed uh, load balancing services, such as the classic ELB, ALB, NLB, all three of them could be used in an RTB application. We at Beeswax, though, have chosen to use the network load balancer, uh, and I'll go into the reasons for doing so. Uh, the first reason is that it's really fast. It's extremely fast. It's low latency, which means that all the savings that you get at the load balancing layer uh, can be transferred to your uh, application. 
the packets on the way in are routed by the, the load balancer to the right uh, instance because the connections are actually terminated at the instances. Uh, and on the way out, the packets uh, leave the EC2 instance and make their way out through the load balancer. Uh, and this requires absolutely no changes to the routing configs in the VPC whatsoever. Uh, so if you're curious as to how this thing works under the hood, I would encourage you to check out the NLB talk uh, later in this week. The next aspect of uh, NLB that's pretty useful for RTB is that it's pretty resilient to uh, spikes in traffic. Uh, it's pretty common in uh, RTB for uh, traffic surges to happen. Exchanges uh, go down and then they come back right up. Uh, sometimes you could have very large campaigns that come online almost simultaneously. Uh, and when this happens, there's a pretty big spike in the number of impressions, clicks, and activities uh, coming into your system. So having a load balancing layer that can uh, deal with these kind of uh, spikes is pretty valuable to have. The third aspect of NLB which makes it pretty attractive is that it has a fixed IP address. You can assign an elastic IP to it. Uh, this means that there is a stable route from the exchanges to your bidder that's independent of the DNS. Uh, and this is a pretty big deal because uh, what we have uh, noticed is that uh, exchanges and the DNS resolvers don't really respect DNS TTLs and you could have a lot of traffic uh, being lost in case there's a change to your DNS. And with the classic load balancer, for example, when the traffic used to go scale up and scale down, the IP to DNS mappings would change and the DNS that uh, Amazon set up had a TTL of a minute and we had all sorts of uh, issues making sure that uh, traffic was uh, routed properly back to our backend. And also, uh, NLB integrates well with the rest of the AWS ecosystem, uh, which means that it's plugged into Autoscale and uh, Code Deploy, et cetera, so we can even leverage those integrations. So the millions of uh, queries per second that hit the load balancer translates into gigabytes of data that need to be transferred in and out of a single EC2 instance. So it's no surprise that uh, you know, RTB is a pretty demanding application on the network. Um, and in our experience at Beeswax, we've found that uh, running your RTB workloads on instances that support uh, Elastic Network Adapter, or ENA, uh, tend to perform really well. And there are a few reasons for that that I'll get into. First, uh, ENA offloads checksums to hardware. So what this means is that your CPU is now free uh, to do more interesting work in the operating system or uh, in your application. Uh, ENA sets up multiple receive and transmit queues to a network device, which means that all your networking operations can now uh, have true parallelism because multiple cores could be involved in, in receive and, and transmit. Uh, there's a feature called receive side steering uh, that ENA supports in hardware. What receive side steering does is that it routes the incoming packets to the right CPU so that you get benefits like cache coherency, et cetera, which also increase performance a fair bit. And the net effect of all of this is that the interrupt load for receiving and transmitting packets is distributed evenly across your uh, different cores in the machine. And so that means that your sing if you have multi-core machines, a single core is no longer a uh, performance bottleneck. Uh, the following uh, command can be run to see if ENA is enabled on your operating system. Uh, at Beeswax, we used uh, Amazon Linux and uh, Ubuntu, and both these uh, flavors of Linux uh, support the ENA device drivers. The goal of the slide was to share some numbers that we see in a deployment at a single region. So we see about 2 million active connections at any given time, 
and about 2 million new connections being established every minute. Uh, in terms of bandwidth, our uh, system uh, consumes about 120 gigabytes per minute. So yes, it's, it's a fairly, fairly demanding uh, application on the network, but the combination of NLB and, and ENA gives us this ultra-performant network uh, that we have come to rely upon, uh, which once again is an example of how you can uh, leverage Amazon to do some of the heavy lifting so that uh, you could focus on, on building your application. And back to Eric. Right. So one of the things we want to do is just to make sure, uh, you know, don't just take our word for it, right? So you can actually use this tool. This is actually called Bees of Machine Guns. Um, it's not from Beeswax, but the name sort of uh, fits this presentation. Um, it's actually uh, on GitHub, and it's available at, at the Chicago Tribune actually developed this app. But what it allows you to do is application or load test uh, your applications using this Bees with the Machine Guns. So you can go to that GitHub site. Um, and, and actually, you can spin up uh, a bunch of EC2 instances. In this example, I'm actually spinning up 100. And I'm doing uh, 1 million requests over, uh, essentially per second, over 10 million requests total. Uh, and so I'm actually pointing to the NLB in this, in this sort of example. But uh, you know, don't take our word for it. Go test it up yourself. Again, we're not talking about thousands or even hundreds of thousands. We're talking about millions, uh, multi-millions you know, uh, of requests per second without any sort of ramp up. It's just instant uh, to the user. So the other thing we touched on in the beginning here around uh, speed or, or processing is a low latency NoSQL data store. Um, so if you're building a bidder or you're an ad tech industry, you need to have some sort of, generally you need to have some sort of uh, NoSQL no uh, low latency data store. So something like DynamoDB or ElastiCache running uh, Memcache or, or Redis on top, uh, or even Aerospike uh, to get that, to make certain decisions on your data as quickly as possible. So you might have uh, match tables or segment sort of data or even cookie type information that you want to uh, make sure you match or, or make a decision on as quickly as possible. So DynamoDB has been around for a long time. Uh, it's a NoSQL data store, fully managed. Um, I think it's been about five years now it's been around. More recent is the DynamoDB DAX. Uh, so DAX is a, a fully managed cache you can put in front of your uh, DynamoDB store. Uh, and this allows you to get from milliseconds to microseconds in terms of latency. So for R2B or even ad tech industry, this is really a game changer in terms of getting that really low latency. Uh, and what's really cool is you don't have to rewrite your code. It's just a new endpoint. When you create that DynamoDB DAX endpoint, you just switch that uh, and point your code to that instead of having to rewrite your application. So with that, I will pass it back to, uh, to Ron to talk about sort of their uh, NoSQL experience. Thanks, Eric. So data really forms the bread and butter of uh, RTB, and it's pretty important that uh, you have a really good NoSQL uh, data store in your RTB stack, because you're going to use it a fair bit. At Beeswax, we rely on Airspike for giving us this high-performance, uh, low-latency NoSQL data store. Our application is written in C++, and it predates the announcement of DynamoDB DAX. Uh, and once DynamoDB DAX has a C++ client, uh, then it's definitely going to be an attractive uh, alternative for us to check out. But in the meantime, uh, we are managing our own Aerospike clusters. And so this is probably the only instance of a service where we don't rely on an Amazon managed service, but decided to do it ourselves. So based on our experience of running Aerospike on EC2, I'd like to share some of the best practices that we've learned over time. 
Uh, first, Airspike is a pretty demanding uh, networking application. It should come as no surprise. Uh, and you see about hundreds of thousands of packets going in and out of a single uh, instance. And so once again, having the ENA-enabled uh, uh, instance types is going to help you a lot to improve the performance. The other thing about Airspike is that it can leverage multiple network interfaces if they exist on your instance. So for example, you could have one instance that's just responding to um, client requests and another instance that's being used for uh, communication between the nodes in the cluster. And setting up multiple uh, you know, network interfaces on EC2 is pretty straightforward. Uh, so it's one of those things that I would definitely encourage people running Airspike uh, in production to, to check out. The next thing that we do is that we run Aerospike in a placement group. Uh, the placement group is an EC2 feature that enables uh, high bandwidth and low latency uh, between the VMs that are in a placement group. Uh, again, running Aerospike in a placement group improves performance, uh, but you should proceed with caution with this one because uh, Amazon makes no guarantees about the availability of a capacity you know, of your instance type or whatnot in a placement group. So you could end up in a situation if you have to scale out, uh, you just don't have capacity in the placement group. So, so use this carefully. Uh, and finally, uh, you know, user data profiles uh, tend to be pretty large data sets that storing them and serving them out of memory can become very, very expensive. Uh, fortunately, Amazon has a solution for that as well. Uh, they recently announced, uh, I mean last year actually announced this instance type, uh, i3 instance uh, type, which come equipped with a NVMe SSD drive. Uh, the nice thing about these drives is that they offer very high performance at a fraction of a cost. So all of a sudden it's okay to be able to uh, do reads at serving time from SSDs because these SSDs are able to handle the, the high throughput uh, as well as the low latency requirements. So definitely if you're running your spike in production and you have large data sets, do check out the i3 instance types. Handing back to Eric to talk about scale. All right, so uh, in this section we'll talk about our global infrastructure, uh, as well as this notion or this concept of building in pods or within regions. Uh, so as mentioned before, we have 16 regions today. This is sort of the, what the map of our regions look like. Uh, we have a variety of different regions coming online in the future, things like Sweden, um, Hong Kong, uh, as well as other areas that we pre-announced. Um, and so just to be clear about sort of our regions versus availability zones, um, and how we design them. It's, a region is essentially a geographic distinct location. Um, within those regions are availability zones, which could be one or even many data centers that are linked together over low latency fiber uh, to get to that really low uh, latency single dig, uh, really low latency connection between those, those AZs. Uh, so the, the other thing that we sort of encourage customers to do is, is to deploy your applications across these ASDs to get the fault tolerance as well as the high availability and really to be able to scale your application uh, much wider and much greater than you would in a, a single data center sort of scenario. So there, the other sort of notion of, uh, as I sort of mentioned, is building with pods. So uh, even though we have distinct geographic locations around the world, uh, you can actually build your application uh, within this, this idea of a pod. So each pod can be a region, and then within that region you have your own infrastructure, your own auto-scaling groups, uh, your own application groups, as well as this isolates from failure into one region. And you don't need to spend a lot of cost or sort of engineering time developing uh, data transfer or other sort of engineering uh, overhead to, to figure out sort of how do I cross traffic uh, across these different globally distributed regions. 
Um, and, that, and one way you can do that is using uh, global DNS or Route 53 uh, to sort of point your, your uh, traffic to different regions depending on latency or even regional sort of constraints. So I'll pass it back to Ram uh, so you can talk about sort of their deployment strategy and, and model. Thanks. So at Beeswax, uh, we deploy across pods by uh, using this tool that we've developed in-house uh, called Hive. Uh, it's a Beeswax system management tool. Uh, one of the cool things about Hive is that it abstracts away the details of how a service, a beeswax service, is actually implemented. So it could be running as an autoscale group or um, as a container on ECS, but all that is abstracted away from the operator of Hive. And it supports common tasks such as uh, creating resources, uh, supporting deployments, uh, etc. It's been written in Python, uh, and it leverages this amazing Bodo3 API. Uh, which means that uh, all of a sudden we have access to all the uh, cool features that IAM offers uh, natively for access control, et cetera. And so we're able to get this uh, ability to be able to uh, deploy uh, globally without having to set up uh, any infrastructure because Hive just relies totally on AWS APIs. Uh, under the hood, Hive relies on CloudFormation templates uh, extensively. Uh, we will uh, usually, our practice is to set up a template uh, test it locally on a single pod, and then easily replicate it globally uh, across the different pods. So uh, whenever you're running a global application, uh, such as RTB, uh, there are certain uh, things that you have to keep in mind that naturally occur uh, by running a global service. Uh, so for example, a concrete example of that is that if you're running um, an application in, in Europe, you have to comply with EU regulations. Uh, so an example of an EU regulation that you have to comply with is that if um, you know, requests originate from browsers or devices in Europe, they should be routed back uh, to servers in Europe. And for this, uh, we've come to rely on an Amazon-provided uh, global service called Route 53 uh, that has a feature called geographic route routing that just takes care of this for us. Uh, so it's pretty easy to set up geographic routing, and once that's set up, then it's guaranteed that you're compliant and that uh, requests that originate from EU always go back to servers in EU. The other feature of uh, Route 53 that we leverage a fair bit is uh, latency-based routing. Uh, so what this feature lets us do is uh, it ensures that we can always route our users to servers that have the lowest latency uh, path to them. And note that this is not the same as the shortest path. The shortest path could have all kinds of uh, you know, issues in the network at that time. So the Route 53 global infrastructure is constantly uh, you know, working behind the scenes and, and making sure that it always has the most optimal route from the user to the servers. Uh, and leveraging this uh, means that we are able to reduce discrepancy between the impressions, clicks, and activities that we report and the exchanges report, which is, if those of you are not tech, you know, it's, it's a pretty big uh, problem. And finally, uh, complex routing scenarios, which are a combination of the two that I just described, uh, can be easily done in uh, Route 53 using uh, traffic flows. It's pretty easy to set up. Um, so RTB is, is a global application. And so if you're working with big advertisers, it's pretty common for them to be running campaigns that span multiple regions or continents. And so it's really important for your bidder to be able to synchronize state across regions. Examples of the state could be campaign management data, budget, uh, you know, user to uh, user profiles, uh, you know, cookie matching, uh, frequency capping, tons of state. 
And so one of the things that uh, you'd need is a reliable and a secure global network that connects your regions. Fortunately, there is an AWS-provided solution for this that's called the Transit VPC. The Transit VPC uh, is basically a hub and a spoke model where the Transit VPC becomes the, the hub and the VPCs where your services are operating become the spoke and all the packets are routed from the spoke uh, via the hub. Uh, you, know, you could uh, have a couple of uh, Cisco routers running in your hub and the connectivity between the hub and the spoke itself is uh, secured via uh, an IP, uh, IPsec uh, tunnel uh, using Amazon's VPN. And again, this is uh, a fairly simple uh, uh, thing to set up and practice because Amazon provides a CloudFormation template um, that you could use and customize uh, to set it up for your needs. Uh, with that, I think I'll hand it back to Eric to talk about cost. All right. Thanks, Ram. So uh, we talked about ingesting data um, uh, as well as our global footprint, but how do you make sure your costs don't sort of overrun? Uh, how do you make sure that your costs are staying proportional to your business needs? So we'll talk a little bit about uh, some cost considerations uh, when you're building a real-time bidder. So this could be sort of a typical traffic pattern. Uh, could be users around the world coming online at different times. Uh, so your traffic's going to go up and down. Uh, or you might have seasonality with your application. Uh, and so you're going to have fluctuation in your, in your demand. Um, so the, the one thing we encourage is to, for customers to, to scale out, but also scale back in, right? So when your demand goes up, you scale out your instances. When your demand goes back down, you scale back in. That's where you get that nice sort of uh, savings there. And you're really matching your compute capacity to your demand. Um, so, you know, how do I do that, right? So some, some one simple sort of way to do this is use something called auto-scaling groups or ASGs. Um, in this example, you know, all, all we're really doing is we're going to create a load balancer, whether it's an NLB, ALB, whatever it may be. Uh, we'll attach an auto-scaling group to that. And then we're going to trigger uh, based on a certain metric. So whether it's CPU or memory or even a custom sort of defined metric that you create, you can do so and trigger your, your scaling out. Uh, and so once that alarm fires, that, that metric is triggered, then you're going to add uh, one or even many inst instances to your auto-scaling group to effectively grow out uh, your demand as your, your demand increases. So right back to, uh, to Ram here to, to kind of go over how they're using uh, auto-scaling. Okay, so um, one of the things I wanted to show via the graph uh, on the screen is that, and this is a real graph uh, uh, in production, of how predictable RTB traffic is. As you can see, uh, there's a very clear pattern uh, in a given region where traffic surges up uh, during the day. There's a peak at around 8 p.m. when folks go home, and then there's a lull when folks hopefully go back to bed. Uh, and the, that, that's represented by the, the green lines. And then the, the blue curve uh, shows how, at Beeswax, we're able to leverage auto-scaling to make sure that the number of instances that we have in service uh, closely tracks the incoming uh, load. And so we're able to both scale up as well as uh, scale down effectively. And so I wanted to share some of the best practices uh, that we follow at Beeswax uh, based on our experience. Uh, so one of the things that we've come to realize is that CPU is a pretty good metric of uh, the load coming into the system. And so if you set up an auto-scale group with CloudWatch alarms uh, that trigger uh, scale-up and scale-down actions uh, based on CPU threshold, uh, that tends to work pretty well. 
Uh, also, we leverage this feature of Autoscale called Schedule Actions. And what this lets us do is, is pre-warm and, and keep our instances ready, because as you can see, the traffic pattern is pretty predictable. And so we could have instances ready, waiting for the load to come in just before the, uh, the early sunrise traffic uh, hits our systems. Uh, it's a very useful feature. And also, the, the last bit of uh, best practice that we've learned over time is to really optimize the boot times of your um, bidders. Uh, so make sure that the AMIs that you're using for your bidders uh, have all the libraries and software pre-configured uh, so that in case there is a spike in traffic, you can quickly ramp up capacity and have your bidders uh, up and, and running to very quickly to be able to handle the, the spike. Back to Rick. So one of the key takeaways from this presentation, we wanted everyone to, to ensure they sort of, uh, I, I guess if you, if you remember one thing, it's the EC2 spot market. So um, you know, the EC2 spot market lets you get deep discounts for your instances. Um, effectively what it is is you're bidding on excess capacity in the EC2 fleet. Uh, so the, there can be fluctuations in the price, but normally you can get up to you know, upwards of 90% off uh, on-demand prices. So our, our sort of data or our, our interaction with the customers, especially around the ad tech customers, has shown that a lot of them rely heavily on the spot market to really reduce their costs uh, as they scale. So there's a couple ways you can use uh, spot, right? So you could, you could say, I want to pay a certain price. You specify the amount of instances you want, and then you specify uh, the type of instance you want. Uh, and then you, you can say, I want n number of instances, and you're good to go. Or you can use something called Spot Fleet. Uh, Spot Fleet allows you to mix and match instance types. Uh, so you can have C instance types, Ds, Is, whatever you want. Uh, and then you really, you, let's say you specify 100 instances, um, and you can you could say, hey, I want to make sure I have 100 Spot instances running at all times. So you, you create a uh, Spot Fleet for that. And then it'll, if there's an instance that terminates or goes down, It'll re, uh, reintroduce or relaunch an instance and put that in your spot fleet so you, you're constantly getting a, essentially around 100 or whatever your configuration is amount of instances. Um, the other way to do it is use something called spot blocks. So if you need an instance that is, uh, is sort of alive or, or there for at least one to six hours, you can specify that in your configuration. So maybe you need to run a job and you, you want to get that deep discount, but you want it there for four hours, you can specify that using spot blocks. Uh, one of the key sort of pieces here, right, is that since you're bidding on excess capacity and the price for those, uh, that excess capacity could change, uh, you could run into a situation where you pay a certain price for an instance and then that price actually increases and therefore uh, we'll actually come in and uh, terminate that instance, but we'll give you a two-minute warning. And so customers can use that time to evacuate the instance, move whatever state information they may or may not have on there. Uh, or even spin up another instance, like an on-demand instance or another spot instance. Um, so this kind of lends itself to workloads that are uh, stateless, right? So uh, you, if an instance fails or goes away, it's not a big deal. You just spin up another one. Or workloads that aren't time-bound or, or even batch process type workloads. Um, or you can kind of try or, or, or use something, a pattern like this. Uh, one of the cool things about this is that uh, we're sort of calling it the waterfall auto-scaling uh, group. Um, and so what this does is you're, you're creating a, a load balancer, and then you're actually using an on-demand auto-scaling group and a spot auto-scaling group. So you get that, um, that uh, reassurance of having on-demand instances, and then you're actually getting that cost reduction and performance from using uh, spot instances. 
So essentially what we're doing is we're going to create two auto-scaling groups, uh, one spot and one on demand, and, make, and fluctuate banding on traffic. So for, from a configuration perspective, uh, it might look like something like this. Uh, this is an auto-scaling group. We have two CloudWatch alarms or metrics we're going to alarm on. Uh, this is the on-demand group, and we're going to alarm on 80% uh, threshold, and we're going to scale based on 80%, and then we're, we're going to reduce or scale back in uh, on 40%. So if we flip over to the spot uh, auto-scaling uh, auto group, we're going to sort of stagger it, so we're actually going to scale on 50%, and then we're going to scale back down on 20%. So essentially, we're, we're, we're sort of staggering the spot and on-demand usage, and effectively what we're trying to do is spin up as much spot as we can, but to get that assurance of having on-demand, so if our application uh, needs to, to scale, it's going to trigger uh, spot first, and then as it scales back down, it's going to kill on-demand first, and then it's going to kill um, spot, but actually reserve that, that sort of on-demand, uh, so you always have that reassurance. And then with that, I'll pass it back to Ram, talk about how they use spot. Thanks, Eric. All right, so if there's one thing that you can take away from this talk, it is that please go and check out Spot Market. Because if you're running an RTB application and you're fielding millions of queries per second, it's going to be a very, very expensive service to run. And if you care about uh, operating costs, which I'm sure all of you do, uh, Spot's going to save you a ton of money. So definitely go check out uh, Spot. Uh, at Beeswax, uh, we've been using Spot uh, for a pretty long time, and uh, here are some of the best practices that we've learned. Uh, the first thing is to make sure that your bidders are completely stateless. So if there's any in-memory state that uh, your bidder uh, is building, then make sure that the state is persisted on hopefully an Amazon uh, managed storage service like S3 or, or EFS. Uh, this will ensure that even when a spot instance is terminated, there's no data loss because you know, everything's uh, present in, in, the, uh, in a cloud-based storage. Next, if your bidder is performing any kind of operation that needs to be uh, logged, like for example, you, know, you typically want to be logging all the bids that your bidder is making, then make sure that that is also persisted into an Amazon uh, managed service such as Kinesis. Um, there is obviously uh, challenges at uh, you know, trying to log bids at millions of queries per second. Uh, so at reInvent last year, we gave a presentation on how you could uh, leverage some of the features of Kinesis to be able to do that effectively in a cost-effective manner. And also, uh, Kinesis provides this library called KPL that I'd encourage everyone to check out uh, that you can really use to uh, be able to log uh, everything into Kinesis effectively. And so the one thing, the golden rule you should follow is that uh, absolutely no useful information should be persisted onto the disk in the machine itself. because you know what, spot instances just go away. Um, the next best practice is to minimize the boot time of the bidder. Uh, this again, uh, you know, as I mentioned during the auto scale section of the talk as well, is, is just a, in general a best practice to have. Uh, one of the risks that we run uh, with deploying on our service on spot is that capacity could disappear with the two minute warning. But this, this can be mitigated uh, you know, easily by uh, following patterns such as the waterfall uh, auto scale that Eric described. Uh, but in order for that to work really well, you need to make sure that your bidders can come back online uh, on the on-demand uh, auto scale group pretty quickly. And one of the ways to do that is to make sure that your AMIs have a pretty uh, small boot time. I'm gonna talk about data. 
So we talked about uh, processing, ingesting data, making decisions on the data, uh, as well as cost considerations. But you probably want to keep a lot of that data for longer periods of time, historical reasons, maybe you want to do trend analysis, uh, or other sort of analytics and insights into your data. So we'll talk a little bit about uh, some of those options. So that's a data lake. Uh, so uh, there's, you know, if you have lots of data coming in, maybe you have data from uh, your, your bidders, your advertisers, as well as third-party data that you want to ingest and, and put together. Um, you can do so using something called a data lake, right? Uh, and that way you can give access to different users, uh, as well as uh, data scientists or, or other sort of internal uh, employees, uh, not to worry about scale. And so. Uh, one of the key sort of pieces where most customers use is they use S3 is sort of their data la layer uh, or data storage for building a data lake. What's great about this is you don't have to copy your data a bunch of times. You can natively use other AWS services. Uh, so if you're ingesting data sort of from uh, Kinesis, uh, you can actually point that using Firehose directly to S3 and not have to ETL or do any sort of other programming to, uh, to modify that. And then you can actually query your data using something like Amazon Athena. So Amazon Athena will let you uh, essentially run SQL compliant uh, or ANSI SQL compliant queries against your data in place without having to move it or copy it um, or do any sort of ETLing on it. So you know why use S3? Um, you know S3 is a pretty popular service. Um, it's it's been around a long time and it's super scalable, right? So if you have 100 terabytes today, um, you have 100 petabytes tomorrow. Uh, you don't need to worry about scaling that up. You don't need to worry about uh, deploying new instances or storage machines or whatever it may be. Uh, it, just, it just scales as you grow. You also don't need to worry about uh, running compute instances to, to keep up that storage, like HDFS, uh, or, um, or, or having any sort of um, uh, storage or, or any sort of compute instances to, to manage that storage. Uh, as well as you can run things like big data frameworks, uh, Spark, Hive, um, Presto or, or even proper Hadoop jobs against that data without having to move it uh, and just do it directly on, on S3. So another good thing about S3 is there's a variety of different classes, storage classes or tiers. Um, and so S3 standard is the commonly used one, but we also have infrequent access or SIA, uh, as well as even Glacier. So if you think about ingesting your data um, and actually keeping that data for longer periods of time, that's sort of the data gets from being less hot or less accessed uh, it gets a little bit colder, so you can or you can actually write something called a, or configure something called a lifecycle policy, and actually move that data across the different tiers. So you're getting a nice sort of cost benefit uh, for your data uh, as you keep data for longer periods of time. So uh, a typical scenario we see a lot of ad tech customers or even um, you know customers in general do uh, with their data is that they have a bunch of data, uh, they want to enrich that data. So again, maybe they have a third party data set, or maybe they have um, you know, a variety of other sources that are getting data in. Uh, they want to enrich it and combine it. Uh, and then they want to give that data set to another user, or they want to actually uh, run some sort of machine learning type models in that data. And so using a variety of different tools or, or sort of analytics uh, options on AWS, a lot of customers will run, will ingest that data into S3. They'll run it through Amazon EMR, which is our managed Hadoop offering. So again, you can run a proper sort of MapReduce or Hadoop job, or you can run a Spark job. Uh, against that data and enrich it, uh, enrich the data with other different sources. And once you've done that, you might want to uh, run some sort of business intelligence tool uh, like QuickSight. So I want to visualize that data. I want to give that data or make a dashboard for other users to consume so they can get insight out of that data as well. 
and so you can do so using using some of the native services with S or with AWS. So with that, I'll hand it back to Ron to sort of talk about their uh, data flow. Thanks, Eric. Uh, so the following diagram is the data-centric view of the Beeswax uh, platform. So I'm going to talk about this architecture left, left to right. So on the extreme left, we have the data collectors. Uh, so the examples of that are the high-performance, high-scale uh, collectors that uh, collect bid requests at, at you know, hundreds of thousands of queries per second. And the challenge really there is how do you, uh, you know, scale up that, uh, that collection process. Uh, and then in addition to that, we have uh, collectors that collect events such as uh, you know, clicks, impressions, et cetera. And the challenge there is to be able to do the collection in a lossless manner because this is the data that's eventually used for billing. Uh, all the data that is uh, collected by our uh, front-end systems are persisted into Kinesis. Uh, we use protocol buffers to encode the actual payload of the, the data that goes into the, into the stream. So moving on to the, the next section, uh, the streaming message hub is sort of the core component of the overall architecture. Uh, this is uh, an autoscale group, again, deployed on, on spot instances that is responsible for consuming the data uh, from the Kinesis stream. And we expose a RESTful API to our customers that allows them to configure both the destination of where this data should be routed to, uh, as well as any kind of transformations that they would want to perform on the data. So an example could be that people might want to, customers might want to uh, transform the data to JSON or CSV or, or custom CSV with their own headers. Uh, all of that is supported through our RESTful API. And in terms of delivery destinations, we support uh, routing to a customer's uh, Kinesis uh, stream, their S3 buckets, or they can even route it to an HTTP endpoint uh, that they have configured to just receive this in a, in a streaming manner. So all the data that's uh, you know, interesting to us uh, is collected by the message hub and then uh, transferred into a bucket in S3. Uh, as Eric mentioned, our data lake is um, built on top of S3. We leverage S3 as the storage layer. And we leverage the Glue Metastore uh, to store all our table definitions, partitions, uh, and all of that uh, ends up over there. And uh, we have jobs that periodically uh, transform the <coughs> format of the data from uh, CSV to Parquet, which is a column IO format. Uh, and all of a sudden, uh, it's possible for all this data to be easily queried uh, through systems such as Athena for all kinds of uh, ad hoc analysis. The data lake also feeds our ETL uh, system. Our ETL is built on top of uh, Redshift. The ETL layer is responsible for doing joins, um, as well as performing aggregations to compute the total number of clicks, impressions for different campaigns. Uh, the orchestration of the different SQL queries that need to run on uh, Redshift is done via AWS data pipeline. And uh, we expose the Redshift uh, cluster where the ETL happens for serving as well. Uh, but this is fronted by our API that aggressively caches uh, the most common queries. Uh, and we've seen an experience uh, Redshift does pretty well when it comes to even uh, serving some of this data. Uh, for optimization analysis, analysis uh, we once again rely on Amazon managed uh, EMR services that uh, ingest the data from the lake. And uh, you know all the model training and model building happens over EMR, uh, and then the models are uh, pushed into S3 from where the bidders then uh, pick it up uh, to do interesting things like uh, click-through prediction, etc. 
So all the data that's uh, you know, consumed and, and processed is finally exposed to our customers in the form of uh, RESTful API, where they can uh, view how their campaigns, et cetera, are performing. We've also built a UI on uh, top of uh, this API that really helps them visualize uh, you know, how, uh, how things are going. Uh, and this campaign management uh, framework and the, the performance supporting framework, both the API and the UI for that are implemented as uh, dockers that are uh, deployed on top of uh, ECS. And the other use case, uh, in addition to performance reports, is that it's easy to get uh, actionable insights on your data uh, once it's been ingested uh, by Kinesis and once it's in the data lake. So one of the things that our platform does is that it, uh, in real time, sends this data to a MetaMarkets uh, endpoint that we have uh, set up. Uh, and once the data is, uh, is in there, uh, then you have access to the MetaMarkets UI through, our, uh, through the Beeswax portal. And all of a sudden, this allows our customers to have uh, very useful, uh, actionable business insights on the kind of inventory that's coming into the, uh, the Beeswax bidder, so they can figure out uh, you know, if they're bidding on the, the right ad sizes, if they're uh, looking at you know, mobile requests, um, et cetera. So all this is uh, you know, easily uh, possible and easy to scale, uh, mostly because we leverage uh, Amazon managed services uh, to do all the heavy lifting so that we can focus on all the good stuff of building our product. And back to Dr. Evil. Yeah, I think uh, <laughs> Dr. Evil said it best. Uh, using uh, AWS to power your real-time bidding service will give you over uh, one million requests per second. Uh, so with that, uh, we actually we blazed this one, but uh, if there's any, anyone has any questions, there's, I think there's mics on either side. If uh, probably the easiest way to folks come up to the mics. And thanks, uh, everyone, for coming. Thank you, everyone. Appreciate it. <laughs>